G'day mate, Be here. I'm at the author Greg Kreitzer at a couple of parties. I think the first time was at Kathy Sipe's house and I think I started talking about how HIV is transmitted in the San Fernando Valley industry and Greg was with his wife who's a vice president at UCLA and apparently I, I offended him in just talking about the the basic facts of HIV transmission in a certain sector of the film industry just uh, just offended him but uh, apparently one one day circa 2003 or he was getting out of a car and uh, it, was a, it was a narrow street and someone was trying to drive past him and uh, the driver yelled out the window, get out of the way fatso, which is very fat phobic. It was shaming. I mean, it's like the grossest form of, of body shaming. It completely lacked empathy. Real violation of, I'm sure, YouTube's terms of service. But for Greg Kreitzer, it uh, cut him quick, right? Very painful experience for him. And it led him to deciding to write a book on fat, which he did, you know, a best-selling book on fat, Kreitzer, C-R-I-T-S-E-R. -E so this very cruel, callous, phobic remark catalyzed uh, enormous you know, change, development, and project in, in Greg's life. Then I remember I was uh, going to junior college, Sierra Community College, taking a year off after high school. It was my first year or so at Sierra Community College. And I was over hanging out with my, with my mate. And uh, his dad asked me about my plans. I said, oh, I'll probably transfer to Sacramento State University after Sierra College. And his dad said something that was very insensitive. He said, uh, oh, you know what they say about Sac State, don't you? I said, no. I said, well, they say somebody has to go there. I go, whoa, very insensitive, but it like completely changed my life. Like, okay, I better get serious. And so I changed my college application, transfer application to UC Davis. Right, one of the UC schools. And then... After pulling off straight A's, I changed it to UCLA. Like, all because of this cutting, callous remark. So this bloke is my, my friend's dad, and we used to sit out on his porch and just talk sports. He said I knew more about sports than any other kid my age. So I got to know this family at about uh, age 16. Because when, when I got to the United States, I immersed myself in the Pacific Union College Library and read all the back issues of Sports Illustrated magazine along with Time Life and, and Newsweek and Reader's Digest. So I read, I read a lot of books about sports, not just, you know, I didn't watch that many sports on TV because we didn't have a, a telly. So the sunglasses, sneers in disdain, comments, continues walking. So coming out this Arvo, I think I'll do the big skip, decoding skip, Bayless. I ran into Skip Bayless on Beverly Drive, I think on Monday Arvo. So I'm walking down 
Beverly Drive towards Charlottesville, not Charlottesville, Charlottesville. And Skip Bayless is walking up Beverly Drive towards Wilshire Boulevard. Right, so Skip, and what's his first take uh, type show, uh, Undisputed? Right, he's on, he's on leave from that show because Shannon Sharp quit rather quickly and unexpectedly. So Skip's casting about for a new co-host. In the poor bloke, you know, didn't realize that he was walking past his perfect future co-host. But my bloody Anglo-Saxon reserve, you know, overpowered my Jewish chutzpah. And I've converted to Orthodox Judaism, but totally like chutzpah. I wanted to go up and tell him this anecdote from, I think, December 22nd, 1985. I was at Candlestick Park covering the... San Francisco 49ers demolishing the Dallas Cowboys 31 to 16. And after the 49ers had finished their press conference, I wandered over to the Dallas Cowboys locker room to interview them. I was a reporter for KIKL Radio. There in the hallway was Tom Landry being interviewed. Right, and I've been a Dallas Cowboys fan since about 1977. I've seen him on TV dozens of times. So I walk over, what's Tom Landry talking about? He's saying, well, I haven't spoken with Skip Bayless in, since 1982 or something. So he was talking about Skip Bayless. So I wanted to share that with Skipper, but I thought I should just leave him alone. Skipper is 71, and he looks, looks more vulnerable and frail in real life than he does on the telly. He had on those Jerry Jones-type aviator glasses. Uh, no one was recognizing him or saying anything to him. I just left him alone, but I should have, should have spoken out. Now, Skip Bayless is a, is a real man. He's a, he's a fair dinkum, you know, hetero-American. And he says he puts God number one in his life. And I just wonder, what does that look like? Okay, Skip Bayless, God is your number one priority in life. So what do you sacrifice for God? How is your life different than if you're an atheist? Like what practical significance is it that you put God number one? What practical difference does it make in your life? You put God number one. So, had a good night's sleep two nights ago. Had a pretty decent sleep last night. So I was up at 3 a.m. Finished off Anthony Camilla's autobiography as a shock jock. Then start reading other books about uh, talk radio. And I got into one... Uh, Beers, Babes, and Bozos. There's an academic book on talk radio and the social construction of masculinity. So the left's really big into talking about the social construction of this and that. I absolutely agree that you know, everything is pretty much socially constructed, but it's also genetically constructed. So I just add that. And so I thought, yeah, masculinity is socially constructed. For example, in Australia, there's a lot less introspection over, you know, what is masculine, what does it mean to be a man than in America, probably because Australian culture generally is allowed for fewer choices in expressing your masculinity than American culture. So Australians in general don't tend to be as introspective and psychological, psychologically sophisticated as Americans. Australian culture is the most sexually segregated culture of first world countries. I started thinking, what does it mean to be masculine? So yeah, part of the answer is social construction. So expressions of what it means to be masculine will change depending on time and place. But 
there's also a very strong genetic component. So any authentic form of masculinity is going to allow for considerable levels of aggression. Right? Men are much more physically aggressive than women. They tend to also be more verbally aggressive. So Orthodox Jewish men, for example, not the most physically aggressive men on the planet, but when they're studying Torah or debating Talmud, I mean, it's full on. It's like it's very aggressive, very assertive, uh, verbally violent. Yeah, 40, I'm just a social construct, mate. It's true. I only know who I am by my interactions with, with you, right? And even when I'm all alone, right? What I'm saying, doing, thinking, uh, studying, you know, is affected by my relationships. When I was young, my favorite talk radio program was Love Line with uh, Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. That was talked about a great deal in the porn industry. I don't think I ever heard it, but it was a big deal in that industry. Uh, particularly the segments on double penetration. So I uh, just jotted down some notes, thinking I should do some live streams on like, what does it mean to be masculine? Like what are, what are positive aspects of masculinity? What uh, prompted this? Forty deconstructs himself every day. <laughs> he relieves himself of the social construction. So I was listening to this 12-step talk and uh, talked about one of the purposes of recovery is to start to diminish the, the difference between your values and your behavior. So most of us proclaim that we believe in all sorts of values that you know, our behavior dramatically deviates from. And so to the extent I've made improvements in my life over the last seven to ten years, I think I have diminished, significantly diminished the gap between my values and my behavior. And I think that's one, one component of a positive sense of masculinity. That uh, it's not a huge gap between your proclaimed values and your behavior. That people basically mean what they say, say what they mean within social constraints. So there's not much of a gap between the values I profess and the behavior I practice. So I thought of some, some gaps. I'm more attention-seeking than I would value. I am less conscientious than I value. I'm less considerate of myself and of other people than I would value. I am less interested in being of service to others than I would value. Why did I shave off the beard? Because I was offered money. I needed money. Like I borrowed thousands of dollars to get through my Alexander Technique training from my family. So at the end of the training, when I was about to launch my practice, my family understandably thought that that big old beard is not going to help my, uh, my fledgling Alexander Technique practice. And that was the very approach that this Sheila, right, this Sheila with the billionaire family, that's how she got her hooks into me. Like she hit me up on social media saying, you know, that beard... Like, why'd you shave it off? And I said, because uh, I got bribed to. She said, did you need the money? And I said, yeah. Uh, and I think I got bribed explicitly, like $250 or $500 to shave it off. $500 shave it off. But I'd also borrowed thousands upon thousands to finish my Alexander Technique teacher training. And so 
he commented on certain pictures of mine with the beard, or one picture in particular, and she said, you know, I should be an actor. I said, well, I am in the Screen Actors Guild. And she was pressing all my buttons. And then when it comes time to meet up at the Peninsula Hotel, it's like, oh, I'm here with my friend. I hope you're not going to embarrass me by being a cheapskate and not wanting to pick up our $800 bill. Just uh, toying with my affections, but good thing I'm just completely over this, right? No longer have any resentment about being toyed with. The whole rabbinic sex pest look. <laughs> it was bad optics. <laughs> rabbinic sex pest. <laughs> it's good. Okay, so um, I think I listed off every area where, so that to, to my consciousness, I, I deviate from uh, my professed values. So, what does it mean to be masculine? So, uh, in a positive sense, there's got to be extensive room for aggression. <sighs> There's got to be extensive room to color outside the lines. I've lost my wrench, should you be fed? No, you probably were wrenched on the other channel. Now you're on a different channel. And if I had the capability right now, I would wrench you, bro. I would totally wrench you. I'd wrench you to the max. So men are, men are braver, right? They're more willing to you know, challenge social convention. You know, women are much more likely to color within the lines. So I think that's another aspect, you know, where appropriate, you know, challenge social norms, and do it in an appropriate way, appropriate time, appropriate place, appropriate methods. But men are much braver, you know, less conformist than women. Now, men without social construction are just going to engage in a lot of killing that violent assaults and raping. So you need social construction to take the male sexual genie and stick it in the monogamous heterosexual marital bottle, to quote Dennis Prager. So any kind of positive masculinity will usually depend upon you know, controlling male wildness, you know, proclivities to violence and to uh, promiscuous sex. So, real man, in my estimation, you know, has you know, a fair amount of discipline in these areas, right? Discipline to restrain himself from being physically, violently wild in a, in a criminal sense, and uh, discipline to avoid wreaking havoc with you know, a promiscuous sex life. So I think that's one more component of a positive form of masculinity. Then, oh, because of you know, male genetic nature, you know, men are better off much of the time just being with other blokes. So when a woman comes around, it's going to change the dynamic. And because of you know, testosterone and the male sex drive, you know, men are very easily distracted by women who you know, are attractive and young. So to reduce distraction, right? We need lots of room for male-only spaces. Men need structure and a sense of purpose. Yeah, so men need a tribe, uh, particularly other men. Men, generally speaking, aren't going to take direction, guidance, inspiration from women. So men need 
and male only tribe they then get meaning sense purpose connection bonding and can hang out with blokes you know and reduce sexual frustration and tension i think a masculine society you know, encourages modesty because we realize not just modesty in clothing but modesty all over behavior because we know how wild men can be we know how you know much we're willing to fight for status for women for for power and so i think a healthy masculine community puts you know an emphasis on modesty not just in attire for women but in overall behavior so you don't you know, flaunt your wealth in a way that's disruptive to the social fabric that there's space for egalitarian you know male-only bonding as well as an appropriate sense of hierarchy so men naturally attuned to hierarchy so hierarchy comes you know fairly naturally to men you know we recognize other men who are superior to us in some ways and we're usually willing to take orders from a properly constructed uh, hierarchy uh, men generally speaking respect laws so a healthy masculine community has laws men are naturally attuned to laws and naturally attuned to hierarchy so i think willingness to obey laws and follow hierarchy is another key part of a healthy masculinity uh also recognizing difference you know that, that women are different than men different groups have different gifts i think that that recognition of reality is another important part of being a healthy man uh healthy man recognizes that reality is only reality 100% of the time uh i think a, a real man asks what are the consequences of what i'm saying and doing not just do they feel right will this like boost my status 